40% of postmenopausal women who have symptoms of genital urinary syndrome of menopause also complain of pain with sex. I'm Dr. Rena Malik, urologist and pelvic surgeon. Welcome back to the Rena Malik MD podcast. Today, we're going to talk about estrogen, specifically what happens to the body when you have decreased estrogen. We're going to talk about how it affects your skin, your brain, your bones, your joints, your mood, why women get hot flashes or what we call vasomotor symptoms, and how it affects your vulva and vaginal tissues. We'll also review how it affects the pelvic floor and sexual function and why so many women in postmenopause get recurrent urinary tract infections. So let's start off. Estrogen is a vital hormone that unfortunately drops precipitously for half of the population at midlife, specifically during menopause. Did you know that we women spend 40% of our lives in postmenopause? Now, what exactly is menopause? Menopause is the point at which menstruation stops. Now, during this point, you also have a decrease in your hormone levels. You have changes in your overall body composition and even your psychosocial well-being. Let's go over some definitions of some of the common terms you're probably hearing all the time. So perimenopause is technically the time around menopause. It starts with what's called a menopause transition. And that's when you first notice abnormalities in your menstruation. So typically the early menopause is a seven-day persistent difference in cycle length, which is the early transition. The late transition is when it goes, the change is now 60 days in between your bleeding. And menopause is defined as the time point one year after having your last natural period. And so what that is, is essentially your ovaries are no longer producing enough hormones to cause a woman to cycle, to ovulate, or to become pregnant. Perimenopause, that time around menopause, starts 12 months after that. So now what surprised me when I was reading the literature, and shockingly don't remember this from medical school, is that menopause can occur anywhere from 40 to 58 years of age. In general, the average age is about 51, which means that about half of people will have menopause starting before then and the other half will have it after then. Let's start with talking about how estrogen affects our skin. The skin is made up of a foundation called the extracellular matrix. It's made up of a few things. It's made up of collagen, elastin, hyaluronic acid, and other substances. Now, all of these substances or parts of our extracellular matrix have estrogen receptors. And what that means is they're influenced by estrogen levels in the body. When estrogen decreases, it then affects the activity of cells that produce collagen, and those are called fibroblasts. This then, of course, leads to a decrease in collagen production. Now, collagen is what keeps our skin plump and healthy, and so when you don't have enough collagen, you may notice that you're having more lines and wrinkles or even kind of a loss of volume, things like your skin is a little sunken in. Now, that's not the only thing estrogen does to our skin. It also disrupts elastin. 
Now, elastin is what causes our skin to be more elastic. Now, those fibers, which are usually elastic, become more thick and clumpy. Imagine it's like a stretched rubber band that just doesn't bounce back quite as easily. Also, we see a decrease in glycosaminoglycan production. Now, these are the substances that help keep our skin hydrated and plump. And so when you don't have good estrogen levels, it can leave your skin feeling less moisturized and, of course, less plump. Estrogen, or lack thereof, can also affect melanocytes. Now, these are cells that are responsible for our skin color. So when you have low estrogen, you may notice some blotchiness or uneven colors on your skin, particularly in areas that are exposed to the sun. Lastly, estrogen plays a role in blood flow to our skin. So when estrogen levels drop, it reduces blood flow to the dermal vascular system, meaning the blood flow to the dermis or the skin, and it inhibits forming new blood vessels. So our overall skin becomes thinner, the cell turnover slows down, and it can make it easier to see veins underneath your skin and bony landmarks on your face, which is not really desirable. So actually, that wasn't the last thing. Estrogen disruption also affects growth factors and repair enzymes in our skin. This makes our skin more fragile and makes it more difficult to heal wounds. And this can also cause changes to the bones itself. And it causes some hollowness around the eyes, causes sagging of the eyelids, as well as deepening of these nasal labial folds and even jowling. As you can see, estrogen plays a crucial role in keeping our skin healthy and youthful. So when estrogen levels go down, it can not only affect our mood or other things, it also affects our skin's appearance and the structure of our skin. Some of the best moments in life are spontaneous, unplanned. But for men dealing with moderate to severe erectile dysfunction, or ED, preparing for intimacy can rob you and your partner of spontaneity. The joy of living in the moment. Now you can restore that spark in your relationship with the AMS 700 implant, a clinically proven permanent solution designed for your satisfaction and your partner's. It's the number one physician-preferred implant. It's built to look and feel natural. Happy partners agree. 92% of patients and 96% of their partners report sexual activity with the implant excellent or satisfactory. It gives you the ability to respond to your partner's wishes in the moment, not minutes or hours later. The AMS 700. No pills, no injections, no waiting. For more information, visit edcure.org slash podcast. That's E-D-C-U-R-E dot O-R-G slash P-O-D-C-A-S-T. Sponsored by Boston Scientific. Guys, do you ever find yourself dragging through the day, low on energy, having trouble in the bedroom, or just not feeling like yourself? You might be experiencing something more common than you think, testosterone deficiency or low T. Did you know that low testosterone affects about 40% of American men over 45? As men age, testosterone levels continue to decline. You might notice signs like impotence, changes in sexual desire, depression, reduced muscle mass, or even fatigue. But here's the thing. It's not just about low T. It's about your overall well-being. That's where Rethink Testosterone comes in, a great resource for all men to learn about how testosterone affects their bodies. 
Rethink Testosterone is your go-to platform with tons of educational content and evidence-based scientific studies that go over everything you want to know about testosterone, from how low testosterone affects you to the common myths about testosterone replacement therapy and options for treatments. So check out RethinkTestosterone.com, your hub for all things testosterone and low T. Rethink Testosterone is on a mission to change the narrative and stigma around men's hormone health. Why wait? Visit RethinkTestosterone.com today and consider checking your testosterone levels. Always remember you're worth it. Rethink Testosterone because understanding your health is the first step to owning it. Head to www.RethinkTestosterone.com today and make taking care of your body a priority. Next thing is we're going to talk about the brain. Now, estrogen plays a significant role in our brain health. It influences two specific areas in the brain that are packed with estrogen receptors. These are the hippocampus and the prefrontal cortex. Now, these areas are important for different functions, specifically learning, memory, and other sort of higher level cognitive functions. Many women can experience difficulties with concentration and even memory as they go through menopause. Now, a number of studies like the Women's Health Across Nation, or the SWAN study, and the Penn Ovarian Aging Study have shown that processing speed and memory decline significantly during the transition from premenopause to postmenopause, and particularly in late perimenopause. So interestingly, based on multiple observational and clinical studies, research suggests that using hormone therapy at younger postmenopausal ages may have a protective effect against Alzheimer's disease. Now, you may have heard something different in the New York Times, but we'll talk about that in a minute. So in the Women's Health Initiative, which was a very large study randomizing people to hormone therapy or placebo, people who received estrogen therapy had a lower risk of dying from Alzheimer's disease. Now, let's get back to st that study that was publicized in the New York Times and all over the news, basically saying that there's a link between hormone therapy and dementia. Now, the issues with this study are that the study only gave hormone therapy for about a year, and that's not enough time to cause changes in someone's ability or possibility to get Alzheimer's. So people would discuss this as being biologically implausible to see this consequence. Now, other symptoms of menopause, like having hot flashes, insomnia, depression, and brain fog, all these symptoms are actually correlated with getting dementia. And this is because they have effects on the brain. Insomnia, we know sleep causes issues. Hot flashes are related to abnormalities in the brain that we're going to talk about later. Depression as well is associated with issues in the brain. And so all of these issues are in women who are generally presenting for hormone therapy already. And so it makes sense that these women will then be more likely to get dementia regardless of them taking hormone therapy or not. Bottom line, I think there are clear benefits to using estrogen on brain function. Now, if you're worried about brain health or getting dementia, there's certainly things outside of hormone therapy that you can do to help. Try to maintain an active social life. Now, this is really underreported, right? Loneliness is a huge epidemic in our society. So being able to connect with people you love 
And making time for them is super important, particularly when you are in that busy phase of life, having kids, working hard. It's important to maintain those connections because when you age, that's when you want to rely on those people to be there for you and you to be there for them for maintaining those social networks. Also, increasing physical activity can be very important as well. Also, continuing to engage in physical activity. We know that doing movement is beneficial for our brain as well as mental activities that actually require you to use your brain. And lastly, taking omega-3 fatty acids can be helpful as well. Now, let's move on to weight gain. There's actually some beneficial effects of hormones that can help prevent weight gain. We know three major things about estrogen. Number one, we know that it decreases long-term food intake because it affects the hormone leptin. Number two, it stabilizes lean body mass. And number three, it decreases belly fat and visceral fat, which is the fat around organs. However, when you look at the data on menopause, the reduction of estrogen is not necessarily what's thought to cause weight gain. The general consensus is that weight gain is related to lifestyle changes around midlife. But we know that weight is incredibly complex and likely there are multiple factors that make it more difficult for people to lose weight. We know specifically vasomotor symptoms or hot flashes and night sweats that people commonly experience during menopause, particularly during the early years of menopause, can disrupt sleep. And poor sleep also contributes to weight gain. In fact, they conducted a study on 68 thousand women in the nurses' health study, which spanned over 12 years. And what they found was that women who slept five hours or less gained two and a half pounds more than those who slept seven hours or more. Women who slept for six hours, they gained 1.6 pounds more. We know sleep is affected. We know estrogen has positive impacts on reducing weight gain. So in that case, there is some possible potential benefit. We know that estrogen has beneficial effects. We know that it can affect sleep. We also know that it improves insulin sensitivity, which means that you're less likely to get things like diabetes or have less issues with diabetes, which will overall improve weight gain as well. All right, let's talk about bone health. Now, bone health is a serious issue. In fact, during my career, I have seen the most dramatic changes in people's quality of life when they fall. But let me share some numbers with you. In the United States every year, more than 2 million fractures occur every year because of osteoporosis. That includes 700,000 vertebral fractures, meaning your spine, the bone column around your spine, 300,000 hip fractures, and 400,000 hospital admissions. Now, most of these fractures occur in older postmenopausal women. And in women, that risk of osteoporosis that causes fractures increases from 6.8% in your 50s to up to almost 35% in your 80s. That's more than one in three. Now, a fracture may not sound that serious, but hip fractures are associated with a five to eight-fold increase in mortality. That means that if you get a hip fracture, you're five to eight times more likely to die within three months of that hip fracture than somebody else. And the risk of mortality after a year is more than 20%. So it is not a small thing. Now, estrogen deficiency or loss of estrogen 
leads to what's called increased bone resorption, meaning that's eating up more bone. Your body's eating up more bone and not replacing it with osteoblasts. So increased bone resorption means that your body is taking up bone and not turning it over fast enough, meaning the osteoblasts or the cells that create new bone can't keep up with the bone loss. And this causes a gradual deterioration of multiple types of bone. One is called trabecular bone, and that's sort of porous bone. It's usually found at the ends of long bones. And cortical bone, which is the strong and compact type of bone that's found on the outer layer of the long bones. And so it affects both of those bones. And on average, women experience an annual loss, meaning every year, 2% loss of bone mass starting one to three years before menopause and lasting for five to 10 years. Now, during the menopause transition, that bone loss is significantly more. There's an average loss of 10 to 12% in the spine and hip. And after that, it sort of slows down to about half a percent per year. But by the age of 80, the average woman has lost 30% of her peak bone mass. 30%, that is a lot of lost bone. So when you're thinking about screening for bone health, we use a test that measures bone mineral density, and it's called a dual energy x-ray absorptiometry. And it's generally recommended for all women aged greater than or equal to 65. And if you're below 65, 60 to 64, for example, you want to use something called a FRAX estimate that would put your risk of a fracture, particularly a 10-year risk of fracture at the same age as a 65-year-old. So how do you know if you're at risk? Well, you may have had multiple fractures before, but essentially talk to your doctor and use this online tool called the FRAX tool. I'll put it in the description below and the show notes. Specifically, it measures the 10-year probability of having a fracture, particularly in the hip, the spine, the forearm, or the shoulder. So there's other things that you might do that actually put you at risk too, including smoking and even drinking. In fact, the relative risk of fracture in a postmenopausal woman who smokes increases by 30%. That's independent of bone mineral density. And in terms of alcohol, if you consume three servings of alcohol daily, that's associated with a 38% risk increase in osteoporotic fractures and 68% increase in hip fractures. Generally, estrogen therapy is recommended for bone health in terms of prevention. So when we looked again at the Women's Health Initiative, which is the largest study we have on hormone therapy, it has its flaws, but we're going to talk about those today, that used estrogen progesterone together so they had reduced vertebral and hip fractures by 34% in the low fracture risk population. So based on this and a number of other studies using oral or transdermal, meaning patches or gels of estrogen, are approved for the prevention of osteoporosis, and particularly in young postmenopausal women, so women who are within the first 10 years of going under menopause. Now, systemic estrogen with or without progestin, and the reason you take progestin or progesterone is if you have a uterus to protect yourself from endometrial cancer, it effectively prevents bone loss. And so it's really important to consider this as an option because it really will help you prevent those fractures 
and those injuries that can be really dramatic and life-changing. It's also important to know if you start hormone therapy and then you go and stop it, the benefits of it change rather quickly. And in fact, the bone loss occurs very fast within one to two years after stopping and your protection from fracture or any other sort of injury stops within that first year. So you do need to consider other therapies if you want to help prevent injury. All right, the next topic is joint health. So arthritis, as you probably already know, is really, really common. And in fact, it is one of the most common reasons that people live with disability for years. And arthritis is actually joint-based pain, swelling, and restriction of movement due to the pain and swelling. So estrogen receptors are found in all joint tissues. That includes the articular cartilage, the subchondral bone, and the synovium. Those are all parts of the joint. So to start off, estrogen actually plays an important role in promoting cartilage growth and preventing its breakdown. In fact, researchers have looked at knee joint MRIs of women who are on hormone therapy, and they've actually noticed increased cartilage on their MRIs after going on hormone therapy. So that's one way that your joints benefit from estrogen, but estrogen also helps to decrease bony changes that are associated with osteoarthritis. We've talked about bone health already, so this is another way that bone health is important in your joints. Another interesting thing about estrogen is that it has anti-inflammatory properties. And in arthritis, the joint damage occurs because there's inflammatory signaling pathways that are activated. But estrogen actually acts like a natural anti-inflammatory and helps mitigate some of that joint damage. When you're thinking about how estrogen reduces pain, there's actually a few physiologic mechanisms. First is the estrogen receptors can be found in different parts of the brain and the spinal cord, specifically the dorsal root ganglion, the hypothalamus, the limbic system, in neurons or nerve cells, as well as joints. Now, studies have shown that estrogen therapy actually decreases what we call synovial nerve fiber neurotrophins in animal models. So what that means is they're actually reducing the amount that those nerves fire. And this subsequently actually reduces pain. The other interesting thing is that both estrogen and testosterone have the ability to reduce pain. And they do this by activating specific pain pathways in the spinal cord. So, for example, when estrogen levels are low, like during the early phase of the menstrual cycle or day one, pain and sensitivity can be heightened. And menopause is a low estrogen phase. So I can actually tell you a story. I vividly remember I was getting laser hair treatment and I went in and one day it just hurt so much more than the other days. And my doctor said to me, it's probably because you're around your menses. And I said, you know what? That's true. And so it is certainly possible that menopause or having low estrogen states, whether it's through natural menopause or surgical menopause, can heighten your sensation of pain. Also, as we've talked about, all these changes that occur with low estrogen that include fatigue, poor sleep, and mood changes that we're going to talk about next can actually also work to amplify the perception of pain. 
Men, are you still searching for a solution for your erectile dysfunction? You know, the frustration of pills and injections and pumps? By the time you're ready, the moment may have passed. You and your partner can no longer enjoy the thrill of spontaneity, and scheduling time for intimacy may be a disappointment. Now, there's a way to be ready in the moment for as long as you need. The AMS 700 implant is a permanent ED solution designed for your satisfaction and your partners. Happy partners agree with 92% of patients and 96% of their partners reporting sexual activity to be excellent or satisfactory. So go ahead, live in the moment with our clinically proven physician preferred AMS 700. Learn more at edcure.org slash podcast. That's E-D-C-U-R-E dot O-R-G slash P-O-D-C-A-S-T. Sponsored by Boston Scientific. So next is mood. As you guys all probably know, while not all women experience mood shifts around hormone changes, some people are particularly sensitive to them, and that can occur as well during menopause. Interestingly, there seems to be a higher rate of depression in menopausal women. And that's important, although people are still debating whether this is due to specifically hormone changes. But we do know, based on research, that estrogen plays a role in regulating neurotransmitter pathways and neural receptors. And that's essentially signaling pathways that modulate certain neurotransmitters. Specifically, neurotransmitters, which are signals in the brain, include serotonin and noradrenaline. And those are really closely tied to the development and treatment of depression or depressive symptoms. And so why this is, is because estrogen receptors, as I've mentioned before, are scattered throughout the brain. And that includes regions that are responsible for mood and cognitive regulation like the prefrontal cortex and the hippocampus, which we talked about when we talked about the brain. But the way estrogen impacts serotonin and noradrenaline is actually considered positive, meaning that when you have estrogen, it actually boosts your mood. And that's particularly due to serotonin. And serotonin is sort of like the body's mood stabilizer. And all the treatments that we use for depression, they increase serotonin. And so how estrogen works is it limits the activity of enzymes called monoamine oxidases, and these break down serotonin. It also boosts the synthesis of tryptophan hydroxylase, which is a very important enzyme in serotonin production. So based on these things, we're seeing an overall increase in the production of serotonin and the availability of serotonin because it's not getting broken down as quickly. Interestingly, there's also thoughts that estrogen may have mood-enhancing or even antidepressant-like effects because it stimulates something called brain-derived neurotropic factor. And this is essentially a key molecule that's involved in plastic changes. So you've heard about neuroplasticity, right? It's involved in plastic changes related to learning and memory. And this acts like a protective agent for the brain. In terms of women going through menopause, studies have consistently shown that perimenopausal women have a higher risk of experiencing depressive symptoms compared to premenopausal women, anywhere from 45 to 70 percent compared to 25 to 30 percent. That's a pretty big difference. Okay, listen up. This is so fascinating. There was a small study that found that the risk of depression 
that came on during the 24 months around the last menstrual period was 14 times higher than any period in the prior 31 years preceding it, meaning that 31 years before menopause, you were 14 times less likely to have depression than the time around menopause. And in another study, a double-blind randomized controlled trial, now these are like the gold standard studies where they take a treatment and that placebo and they compare them so we can really see head-to-head what are the difference. They found that perimenopausal and early postmenopausal women between the ages of 45 and 60 were given transdermal estradiol, which is a topical estrogen formulation, a patch, or a placebo for 12 months. And what they found was that the placebo group had a significantly higher likelihood of developing and reporting depressive symptoms compared to the group receiving estradiol. And the difference was 33% to 17%. So that's a pretty large difference in my mind. And they saw that these benefits were more common in women who were in early menopause transition. Now, we're going to talk about why everything seems to be better in the early menopause transition while we talk about the next section, which is heart health. So when we're thinking about cardiovascular health, you need to understand that there's also estrogen receptors, specifically ER-alpha and ER-beta receptors found in the vascular smooth muscle cells which are essentially muscle cells of the blood vessels and endothelial cells, which are those lining the blood vessels. And when estrogen attaches to these receptors, it actually promotes the production of a variety of substances like nitric oxide that widen or vasodilate blood vessels. And this prevents having excessive cell growth, which would lead to plaque formation. And at the same time, It inhibits the production of molecules that vasoconstrict or narrow the blood vessels. And these are essentially working together to prevent plaque formation. At this point in time, major organizations are not recommending hormone therapy or estrogen for the prevention of heart disease. However, there is evidence that suggests that women who start hormone therapy early, meaning before the age of 60 or within 10 years of menopause, they may actually experience benefit in terms of coronary artery disease and overall mortality. Now, again, why is it that everything seems to work better when you start it earlier? This is based on the theory that as you age, you're going to have more tissue damage, right? And so you want to start the hormone therapy before that occurs. It's because if the hormone therapy is initiated after plaques have formed, because of aging or other comorbid conditions, estrogen actually destabilizes these plaques and then it increases the risk of stroke and cardiovascular disease. Whereas when you're young and healthy, it's a lot safer and essentially has much more benefit. So basically when they analyzed all this data, they found that there was conflicting data because they didn't separate out young women to women who were older getting hormone therapy. So in a secondary analysis of the Women's Health Initiative data, where they looked at younger women, they found that there was a significant reduction in the combined occurrence of heart attacks, coronary artery revascularization, and coronary death in women from the ages of 50 to 59 who were randomized to receive estrogen therapy. 
In addition, there's been more than 40 observational studies that consistently show reduction by 30 to 50% in coronary artery disease among those who take hormones compared to those who do not. Now, there was what's called a Cochrane review, and this is basically a well-respected review that's done of all the literature. And so in 2015, they published a Cochrane review of randomized controlled trial data of hormone therapy. And basically what they found was that if you initiated that within 10 years of menopause onset, it lowered the risk of coronary artery disease in postmenopausal women by 48%. Let me say that again. If you take hormone therapy within the first 10 years of menopause, it can lower the risk of coronary artery disease by 48%. And it can reduce all-cause mortality, meaning death, by 30%. All-cause mortality by 30% with no increased risk of stroke. But there is still a small increased risk of venous thromboembolism. But it's very similar to the risk that you get with oral contraceptives. Now, this is pretty remarkable, guys, that you can take a hormone that will reduce your risk of dying compared to someone who didn't take it by almost 30%. That is really, truly tremendous. Now we're going to talk about vasomotor symptoms. These are defined as hot flashes, sudden intense sensations of heat, basically in the upper body, in the face, in the back, in the chest, which can last one to five minutes. And they are very common in menopause. In fact, it's estimated that by the year 2025, 1.1 billion women around the world will experience vasomotor symptoms. That is not a small number. That's a lot of women. Now, it's not just hot flashes. They often have sweating, chills, anxiety, and even heart palpitations. And these symptoms are not just short-lived. For some people, they can last up to seven years. In fact, in African Americans, they've been seen to last up to 10 years. Now, that is a long time to deal with hot flashes. Now, these occur because of dysfunction or abnormalities in a thermoregulation center in the brain, specifically in the hypothalamic control center. Now, this is the area that controls the constriction or narrowing of the blood vessels and dilation of the blood vessels in response to temperature changes. So when it's hot, your blood vessels will dilate to let off heat and they'll constrict when you're cold. Now, abnormalities in this process during uh, menopause actually narrow the thermoneutral zone, meaning that even minor changes in body temperature will trigger hot flashes. Now, why this happens is because there's certain neurons in the brain, and these are called kispeptin neurokinin B dynorphin neurons. People like to call these candy neurons. They express estrogen receptors, and they are responsive to estrogen. So when these levels of estrogen decrease, these neurons actually become larger and hypertrophied, and that means they increase in size. This contributes to an increase in hot flashes. Now, we've talked about this already, but sleep is a huge issue when you're dealing with vasomotor symptoms. And we've seen that these symptoms are strongly correlated with insomnia. 
in, again, major studies like the Women's Health Across the Nation or SWAN study and the Penn Ovarian Aging Study. We talked about these earlier. And so insomnia can be a huge problem. It can have huge overarching effects through your whole life. And if you have sleep disorders already, like restless leg syndrome, these can actually worsen when your estrogen decreases. In fact, if you have restless leg syndrome, 69% of women who have it prior to menopause report that their symptoms actually worsen after they go through menopause. Now, most trials that have compared hormone therapy with a placebo have shown improved, at least perceived sleep quality, meaning subjective sleep quality, and a reduction in self-reported sleeping problems. However, when they looked at more objective measures of sleep, like you know, how many hours you sleep and fragmentation in sleep, they've seen more modest results, meaning that you do see some reduction in sleep fragmentation and some reduced wakefulness and reduced arousals, but it's not as dramatic. Okay, moving on to my favorite topic. I saved the best for last, pelvic floor dysfunction. So hormones affect your pelvic floor. And this is because when you have hormone deficiency, you can see a reduction in collagen, hyaluronic acid, elastin, and changes in myosin filaments. We talked about those earlier in the section about skin, but it also can affect these changes in your pelvic floor muscle, which means that you'll see decreased muscle strength, increased connective tissue density, and decreased blood flow to those muscles. And this essentially leads to stiff, weak muscles that don't move as well as they used to. If you have weak pelvic floor muscles, this can actually make it harder for you to hold urine in. When you do an activity that increases abdominal pressure, so say, for example, you're lifting something heavy, you're sneezing, you're coughing, you're jumping on a trampoline, these muscles will normally squeeze and stabilize the pelvic floor so that you can keep your urine in, meaning that the urethra has enough pressure to overwhelm that increased pressure in the bladder so that urine doesn't leak out. But when these muscles are weak, which they can get due to a variety of things like childbirth, pregnancy, standing on your feet a long time, being overweight, neurologic conditions, but hormones can also affect them. And so when they're weak, you can then have leakage or stress urinary incontinence. In this case, hormone therapy has not shown a benefit with stress urinary incontinence. It has shown a benefit with overactive bladder. And this is because there are estrogen receptors in the trigone of the bladder and the urethra. So what overactive bladder is, is urgency, frequency, urgency, urinary incontinence, meaning got to go, got to go to the bathroom, got to go to the bathroom often, sometimes not making it because you leak urine. In patients who have these symptoms, hormone therapy has shown a modest benefit. So in these cases, hormone therapy, particularly vaginal hormone therapy, can be very beneficial. And we'll talk a little bit more about vaginal estrogen before we finish the podcast. Hey guys. Low testosterone, or low T, affects about 30% of adult men in America. Are you feeling the drag of fatigue, noticing a dip in muscle mass, or sensing a slump in your libido? You might have low T, a condition that can significantly impact a man's life. Get your testosterone level tested. Kaizotrex is an FDA-approved pill that's changing the game in testosterone replacement therapy. Kaizotrex was shown to be effective in restoring testosterone levels in nearly 9 out of 10 clinical study participants. Each Kaizotrex oral capsule is uniquely formulated to be easily absorbed and bypass your liver to avoid liver damage. 
Patients also saw a decrease in sex hormone binding globulin and an increase in free testosterone. It's time to break free from injections, pellets, and gels. Choose Kaisatrex and take a step towards being the hero of your life. By prescription only, Kaisatrex is a controlled substance and can be a target of abuse. Kaisatrex is not for use in pregnant women or men with prostate or breast cancer. Safety and efficacy in those younger than 18 is not known. Tell your doctor about all medical conditions and medications. Serious side effects could include increased blood pressure, worsening prostate symptoms, increased risk of prostate cancer, blood clots in the legs or lungs, decreased sperm problems, liver problems, enlarged or painful breasts, and breathing problems while you sleep. Common side effects include swelling of the ankles, feet, or body, increased red blood cell count, and increase in prostate-specific antigen or PSA levels. PSA is a test used to detect prostate cancer. Report these symptoms to your doctor. Call your doctor to learn more about Kaisatrex. For questions or more information, visit www.kaisatrex.com or call 1-833-949-5040. So the next thing we're going to talk about is vulvovaginal atrophy. Now, vulvovaginal atrophy, it's a horrible name, and it basically describes the changes that occur to the genital organs. It occurs in up to 84% of women, and it can cause symptoms like dryness, irritation, and burning in the vaginal area. It can also cause urinary symptoms, which include pain with urination, urgency, like gotta go, gotta go, which we just talked about, and recurrent urinary tract infections. So these are just the bane of everyone's existence. Now, let me explain first what happens anatomically. So when you lose estrogen during menopause, you will see changes in your vulvar tissues. And so just as a reminder, your vulva is the entirety of your tissues between your clitoris, your mons, your clitoris, and down the labia majora, menorah, the vagina, and down to the anus. One thing you may notice is that when you lose estrogen, women will see a resorption and narrowing of the labia menorah. So the inner lips will actually resorb and become smaller. And you'll also see thinning of the vaginal epithelium. So this tissue in the vagina itself will become thin and less elastic. The vestibule, which is located between the labia minora and the hymen of the vagina, is a particular part of the body that has very dense sensory nerve endings and has a lot of estrogen and testosterone receptors there. So when estrogen goes down, you can actually have increased sensitivity and pain. And this is based on the theory that as you age, you're going to have more tissue damage, right? And so you want to start the hormone therapy before that occurs. It's because if the hormone therapy is initiated after plaques have formed because of aging or other comorbid conditions, Estrogen actually destabilizes these plaques, and then it increases the risk of stroke and cardiovascular disease. Whereas when you're young and healthy, it's a lot safer and essentially has much more benefit. So basically, when they analyzed all this data, they found that there was conflicting data because they didn't separate out young women to women who were older getting hormone therapy. So in a secondary analysis of the Women's Health Initiative data, where they looked at younger women, they found that there was a significant reduction in the combined occurrence of heart attacks, coronary artery revascularization, and coronary death in women from the ages of 50 to 59 who were randomized to receive estrogen therapy. 
In addition, there's been more than 40 observational studies that consistently show reduction by 30 to 50% in coronary artery disease among those who take hormones compared to those who do not. Now, there was what's called a Cochrane review, and this is basically a well-respected review that's done of all the literature. And so in 2015, they published a Cochrane review of randomized controlled trial data of hormone therapy. And basically what they found was that if you initiated that within 10 years of menopause onset, it lowered the risk of coronary artery disease in postmenopausal women by 48%. Let me say that again. If you take hormone therapy within the first 10 years of menopause, it can lower the risk of coronary artery disease by 48%. And it can reduce all-cause mortality, meaning death, by 30%. All-cause mortality by 30% with no increased risk of stroke. But there is still a small increased risk of venous thromboembolism. But it's very similar to the risk that you get with oral contraceptives. Now, this is pretty remarkable, guys, that you can take a hormone that will reduce your risk of dying compared to someone who didn't take it by almost 30%. That is really, truly tremendous. Now we're going to talk about vasomotor symptoms. These are defined as hot flashes, sudden intense sensations of heat, basically in the upper body, in the face, in the back, in the chest, which can last one to five minutes. And they are very common in menopause. In fact, it's estimated that by the year 2025, 1.1 billion women around the world will experience vasomotor symptoms. That is not a small number. That's a lot of women. Now, it's not just hot flashes. They often have sweating, chills, anxiety, and even heart palpitations. And these symptoms are not just short-lived. For some people, they can last up to seven years. In fact, in African Americans, they've been seen to last up to 10 years. Now, that is a long time to deal with hot flashes. Now, these occur because of dysfunction or abnormalities in a thermoregulation center in the brain, specifically in the hypothalamic control center. Now, this is the area that controls the constriction or narrowing of the blood vessels and dilation of the blood vessels in response to temperature changes. So when it's hot, your blood vessels will dilate to let off heat and they'll constrict when you're cold. Now, abnormalities in this process during uh, menopause actually narrow the thermoneutral zone, meaning that even minor changes in body temperature will trigger hot flashes. Now, why this happens is because there's certain neurons in the brain, and these are called kispeptin, neurokinin, B, dynorphin neurons. People like to call these candy neurons. They express estrogen receptors, and they are responsive to estrogen. So when these levels of estrogen decrease, these neurons actually become larger and hypertrophied, and that means they increase in size. And these, this contributes to an increase in hot flashes. Now, we've talked about this already, but sleep is a huge issue when you're dealing with vasomotor symptoms. And we've seen that these symptoms are strongly correlated with insomnia. 
in, again, major studies like the Women's Health Across the Nation or SWAN study and the Penn Ovarian Aging Study. We talked about these earlier. And so insomnia can be a huge problem. It can have huge overarching effects through your whole life. And if you have sleep disorders already, like restless leg syndrome, these can actually worsen when your estrogen decreases. In fact, if you have restless leg syndrome, 69% of women who have it prior to menopause report that their symptoms actually worsen after they go through menopause. Now, most trials that have compared hormone therapy with a placebo have shown improved, at least perceived sleep quality, meaning subjective sleep quality, and a reduction in self-reported sleeping problems. However, when they looked at more objective measures of sleep, like you know, how many hours you sleep and fragmentation in sleep, they've seen more modest results, meaning that you do see some reduction in sleep fragmentation and some reduced wakefulness and reduced arousals, but it's not as dramatic. Okay, moving on to my favorite topic. I saved the best for last, pelvic floor dysfunction. So hormones affect your pelvic floor. And this is because when you have hormone deficiency, you can see a reduction in collagen, hyaluronic acid, elastin, and changes in myosin filaments. We talked about those earlier in the section about skin, but it also can affect these changes in your pelvic floor muscle, which means that you'll see decreased muscle strength, increased connective tissue density, and decreased blood flow to those muscles. And this essentially leads to stiff, weak muscles that don't move as well as they used to. If you have weak pelvic floor muscles, this can actually make it harder for you to hold urine in. When you do an activity that increases abdominal pressure, so say, for example, you're lifting something heavy, you're sneezing, you're coughing, you're jumping on a trampoline, these muscles will normally squeeze and stabilize the pelvic floor so that you can keep your urine in, meaning that the urethra has enough pressure to overcome that increased pressure in the bladder so that urine doesn't leak out. But when these muscles are weak, which they can get due to a variety of things like childbirth, pregnancy, standing on your feet a long time, being overweight, neurologic conditions, but hormones can also affect them. And so when they're weak, you can then have leakage or stress urinary incontinence. In this case, hormone therapy has not shown a benefit with stress urinary incontinence. It has shown a benefit with overactive bladder. And this is because there are estrogen receptors in the trigone of the bladder and the urethra. So what overactive bladder is, is urgency, frequency, urgency, urinary incontinence, meaning got to go, got to go to the bathroom, got to go to the bathroom often, sometimes not making it because you leak urine. In patients, 